chapters, but there is so much in here, and I think I said it last week, but you can see God's hand <clears throat> playing behind the scenes. And even here in the church in the end time, Christ isn't walking the earth like he did in his earthly ministry, but we can see his hand in things that happened to the church decades ago and what has happened to the church since, the things that he said he would do to chasten us, the things he said he would do to bless us. And there's so many, many things that go on behind the scenes without God making an appearance. And as I said last week, uh, people say, well, the book of Esther shouldn't even be in the Bible, doesn't even mention God. Well, most of the books of the Bible mention God quite prominently. But I, I think there's an abject lesson in here that God may be giving us, is that he can manipulate things from behind the scenes without making his presence known, and yet incredible things can come together for those who have an eye to see and an ear to hear. <laughs> for someone else, they couldn't see God's hand. But you and I, having God's Spirit and understanding His Word, have ears to hear and eyes to see. And we can see many times what He's doing, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those around us and His church as a whole. Because we know what he says in here would go on, and then we watch it as it develops. We watched the development of the spewing of the church, for instance. Well, we've been told in there exactly what would happen, and then you tie that with the Song of Songs, is another one that comes to mind, where there was a close relationship developing between clearly a type of Christ and his bride. And uh, he went away and was gone, and she got in bed and got sleepy and got warm. And he knocked on the door, and she wasn't quite ready to get up and meet him. Well, I'm warm, and I have my teddy bear, and, and it's, it's cold in the room. And he waited long enough for her to get up and get to the door, and she didn't make it, and he left. Then she went about the streets hollering and crying and asking the watchman where he had gone, which, of course, ties to the story of the ten virgins and how they all went to sleep and woke up, and some had oil and some didn't, and some were able to find him, obviously, and some weren't. Followed very closely on the heels of that is the wedding supper and the story of those who came prepared and those who came unprepared. So these things all tie together from one end of the Bible to the other. And this story of Esther, I think, is such a clear thing. All the players are obviously human. And yet the king did certain things that remind you of the father or of the son. And the things that Mordecai did remind you of Christ taking care of his adopted bride, adopted people. Uh, we were grafted in <laughs> to the spiritual tree. And then Esther herself uh, does many things that God calls or Christ calls upon his bride to do and the way that we ought to be. Vashti, on the other hand, kind of reminds me in some respects of ancient Israel. I skipped over that last week, but... Uh, 
Consider her for a moment. She was not called into the king as often as she might like to have been. The kings in those days had all kinds of concubines and women around, and a queen only got called in when he wanted her to. Even Esther, we'll find, hadn't been called in once she was queen for 30 days. Uh, so Vashti had allowed that perhaps to work on her. Let's look at this a little bit from her standpoint for a moment. She had been neglected, and here the king was having a huge banquet for months about himself and about all those who uh, were under him, and she was being left on the side. So a women's lib party started. She invited all the women from the castle and the area for a banquet of her own. So I think she was probably kind of ticked off that she was not getting the kind of attention as a queen that she wanted, Uh, and he was giving his attention elsewhere. So uh, that probably worked on her, because women then were not loved and respected and treated as equals to the men, as the New Testament shows they should be. He might be in charge, but he's not an overlord by any means and should not act that way. But that was what was going on in that Gentile kingdom. And she was feeling the heat. You know, I'm important too. I'm the queen. So she got all the girls and had a girls party. And by then she had probably worked herself into a pretty nasty attitude. So when the king did finally invite her in, she said no. And as a result, she suffered. Now that kind of reminds me of ancient Israel. She decided God was not giving her the attention she needed in quite the way she wanted it. So she did her thing with other nations and other peoples and other gods. It came to mind Moses on the mountain, Israel running around naked while Moses was on the mountain. Because Moses and God were off over there, and here she was all to herself. So she said, let's party. Aaron, can you make us a god? Oh, I think I could do that. And he did, and then they stripped down and partied. So, ancient Israel was kind of like Vashti in a lot of ways. Uh, these, these similarities in this story. And then she was put aside. Well, Christ divorced ancient Israel. And now, and then he began to looking for a fair young virgin, if you will. And that's the way he depicts us. Even the people at Corinth, Paul said, were virgins before Christ. Uh, After having been polluted in the temple of Diana and all the stuff that they had been through physically and spiritually in uh, fornications and adulteries. And yet, once they repented, God judged them as clean and pure before him which is all that mattered, was them changing their attitude. Now, 
Vashti never changed hers, but Esther was humble and meek and quiet of spirit, and her beauty shone not just in her face, but through her eyes and in every way, so that she had something the other girls who were candidates to be queen simply did not have. I'm sure her inner beauty showed through. Though she was physically beautiful, that inner beauty had to have shown. Because you gather up all the beautiful women in 127 provinces from the Mediterranean to the Pacific Ocean, and there's not going to be a whole lot of difference physically. I mean, beautiful's beautiful, and you can only get so beautiful physically. So therefore, it had to be from the inside that showed on the eyes and the face, the, the, the personality, the heart, the, the kind of person that God is looking for. The queen was I mean, the king was looking for. So he's looking for those qualities in us. And he doesn't tell us in Matthew 5 right off the bat, I'm looking for the most beautiful people on earth. No, he says, I'm looking for those who are poor in spirit, meek, humble, contrite, uh, and all those qualities, peacemakers, that he wants us to be. That's what he's looking for. And after dealing with Vashti, and maybe her attitude went back a long way, who knows? And then she just simply outright rebelled. Uh, that didn't appeal to the king. He was looking for something else, a different attitude of mind, spirit, and personality. And I suspect that's what he found in Esther. And that's what Christ is looking for in us. Not just physical beauty, because we're going to be transformed in any case and be far more beautiful then than we are now, as far as our looks are concerned, as spirit. But we'll also be transformed in heart and mind. And that's what we're supposed to be doing right now, is causing that transformation to occur. It's on a much lesser level than it's going to be done instantaneously. But he wants to see us moving in that direction with those attitudes. Because then he can say, there's one that I want to be in my kingdom. There's one that exhibits the character and the personality traits that I'm after. And I can fix anything about physical looks real easily. And then I'll give them an upgrade in spirit and personality as well over what they've been able to achieve. But with His Holy Spirit now living in us, we need to be making those transformations in attitude and spirit, not being impatient. You'll notice how patient Esther and Mordecai were in working through this and didn't try to tell everybody, we're the Jews. We're God's chosen. They kind of kept it quiet as to who they really were. And in one sense, I was frustrated worldwide for not coming out and saying who they were as a church. But on the other hand, why brag as well? Uh, just let your light shine to the world without bragging about how you're the one and only. Uh, 
we took it one step, I think, beyond what we should have by trying to hide that we weren't even a church. We were from Ambassador College. So I think that was taking that too far. But there's something to be said for quietly going about being like God without having to pray about our, I mean, brag about our uh, closeness to God or us being the only ones or the chosen ones or the only ones whose prayers are heard or how much we pray and study or all of those things about how spiritual we are. We don't need to go there. We just need to quietly do what God wants us to do and receive his love that he will give back to us. So anyway, there's, there's a great deal in here. Let's go to chapter 3 then. Uh, the two who were forming a conspiracy against the king had just been hanged. And Mordecai had been the one who outed them through Esther and as to, to see what was going on there. And don't we go before God to let him know what's going on in our lives and in the world and pray for his kingdom to come? Uh, we go before the Father and the Son to tell him what's wrong, to tell him what the need is, to tell him what... We desire. And that's what had happened. So after these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadeva, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. Now if you look up Agagite, uh, that's of Agag. And Agag was an Amalekite. Now the Amalekites were one tribe that God had said to destroy completely, not allow to live. So here was a, an Amalekite from Agag, and if you go back and read it there in 1 Samuel 15, uh, Samuel hewed Agag in pieces. Uh, Samuel knew God's attitude toward Ishmaelites, and Agag and, Agat and Agatites, sounds like some kind of mineral, uh, go back to Esau as well. <laughs> so it's of the family of Esau. So Haman was both an Amalekite and an Edomite. And what does God say will happen here in the end time, as it has throughout history, uh, between Israel and Esau, or Edom, here at the end? Read the book of Obadiah. <clears throat> and how those people in high places with lots of money conspire against Israel to destroy Israel. And then they, when we fall, they will take great joy and pleasure in that. And then God will deal with them. So here is a story again of an Amalekite and an Edomite who hated Jews. We'll get into that story now. But this guy had been exalted by the king. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. So everybody said, okay, the king has endorsed Haman, 
And he told us to bow down before him and to reverence him, so we will. Do you see a beast power arising here in type? <laughs> you got to bow down before the beast and the false prophet. Otherwise, you can't buy and sell. Otherwise, you're made an outsider. You got to take their shot, their vaccination. You got to have a vaccination permit to travel. And this is becoming more and more pronounced and being talked about as the weeks go by here. So it's morphing into the mark of the beast. I think that's clearly being shown. And if we start accepting the mask and the shot, we're accepting the mask and then very soon thereafter the mark of the beast. Funny how the words all seem to come together. One word, one letter difference between mask and mark. So you're being brought in there to be abused. So here was someone, but Mordecai did not bow down. Now, Mordecai knew about kings, and he knew about someone exalted by the king, and therefore he knew that he was possibly going to lose his head for not bowing down to, Mordecai, uh, to uh, Haman. Just as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that they would probably die if they didn't bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel is totally an end-time book about the king, coming king of the world and the image of the beast, Nebuchadnezzar's image that he raised, and the parallel there with Revelation is so very, very clear that we cannot bow down before the image of the beast or the beast. And Mordecai would not. So does Mordecai represent Christ? Yeah, in some ways in this story I can see things that Christ would do. But I also see things here that Mordecai did that we should do, and things that Esther did that we should do. So the types come and go, but the story is essentially the same in this book as it is here in the end time. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's commandment? Why don't you have a shot? Why don't you have a mask? Why don't you have a mark? You want, here you are at the counter and you want to buy this, and yet you don't have a chip in your hand or your forehead to read, so you can't buy. Why don't you bow down? Now, it came to pass when they spoke daily to him, they harassed him. He hearkened not to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So these people were harassing him. So he probably held back at first, but he finally told them, well, I'm a Jew, and we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so therefore, we can't bow down before and reverence anyone else. He probably tried to explain his position. Well, they didn't like that, so they took it to Haman. Is anybody going to take God's people before Satan? 
<laughs> oh, I think so. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. Now, here he is portrayed in the, the light of the way Satan is. He wants everyone to bow down and worship him. He tried to get Christ to bow down and worship him, and he would not do it, and he was very angry. Now, you read Revelation 12, and Satan is very aware of all God's people and goes before God's throne daily to accuse us before God. And he is going to be cast down. And when he does, he's going to chase the church, the true believers, into Zion. And his army is going to be destroyed. And he is going to be very angry and go find the remnant of her seed, that is, the 90% who are left behind, and make war against them. I'm going to thumb over to Daniel 11 right quick and read just a little bit of this. It's about the king of the north and the king of the south and them sitting down at one table and telling lies to each other and making a pact that wouldn't last. But verse 31, it talks about taking away the uh, daily sacrifice and polluting the sanctuary of strength, God's place, and placing the abomination that makes desolate that Christ spoke of in Matthew 24 and also in the book of Revelation. And such as do wickedly, verse 32, against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries, try to win them over his way. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Read Micah 4 and 5, and you'll see them doing exploits there. Read Isaiah 40 and 41, and it talks about how he'll make us a sharp threshing machine, as it does in Micah. They'll do exploits. And they that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. Some are going to stand up when they're left behind and try to speak up for God. And when they fall, they'll be helped with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries, and some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is for a time appointed. And that king will do according to his will and so on. And he'll set up his kingdom in the Holy Land, at where God's temple has been built by God's people. So what we have here is one of those other uprisings against God's people that occurred back in Esther and Mordecai's day. And God will be working behind the scenes and give a little help to those who are being persecuted and killed. Maybe even some of those who are the really true believers. Who knows? Uh, God will try and test. Anyway, Haman was full of wrath. Verse 6 of chapter 3. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He wanted to get him and murder, murder him with his own hands. For they had showed him the people of Mordecai. So not only was Mordecai outed as a Jew by his own mouth, 
But then these people had also said, well, all of these Jews around here are kin to Mordecai. They're worshiping that same God. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. He hated Mordecai so bad, he wanted to kill them all. Doesn't Satan want to destroy God's whole church? All the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Now in the first month, that is, the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, the lot, before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. We're in that now. This year we have thirteen months, uh, and we kept Purim during the twelfth month. Now, what they did then was they formed a conspiracy. And Pur, or casting of lots, that's a technical name for casting of lots, is what they did because Haman hated the Jews so badly that they would get together and confer and they would all cast lots, or their opinion, uh, done in a physical manner, as to what should be done. And over a period of 12 months, they hatched this conspiracy against the Jews and against Mordecai and ultimately Esther, not really knowing, maybe. Are there conspiracies? <laughs> Does Isaiah 7 talk to us about not fearing the conspiracy that is here today, but fearing him instead? Now, you'll see in this story that... They didn't show a great deal of fear for what Ahasuerus and Haman might do, although there was some concern, certainly, <coughs> and fasting was involved. But they turned to God with fasting and prayer. So when the threat came, they knew where to go. And this thing had been hatched up over a long period of time, 12 months, and the conspiracy that we're facing starts with Satan and goes through those whom he's influenced, and it's been going on for a lot longer than that. Really, it's been going on since Adam and Eve. It's coming to a culmination now. It's had many episodes through the years, and this story of Esther is just one of those episodes. So it's come and gone, come and gone, come and gone. It came again in World War II, where they were trying to destroy all the Jews. Uh, didn't happen. They destroyed a lot of them, though. So it's, it's had different chapters and different outcomes. So we wanted all of them, and they hatched this plot over a 12-month period. Verse 8, and Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people. I think it's interesting the way he put that. He didn't say, I'm coming here to talk to you about the Jews. He just says there's a certain people. Perhaps politically it was in his favor not to identify just who they were at this point. But what he wanted was to get a message to the king about what these people were doing. It wasn't a matter necessarily of who they are or who they do worship. It was a matter of what they're doing against you, the king. Because we saw in chapter 1 that the king had a tremendous ego with this great months and months long party and all of the ego that came out as a result of it, 
So he comes to King Ahasuerus, and Haman was cunning and sly. Just as the Jews today are cunning and sly, the Edomite Jews, who are, dis- or are seeking to destroy this nation and all Israel. And we see it around us now. We see the plot having hatched. And now the chick is coming out of the egg, becoming more and more obvious. A certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. It's your kingdom, king. He reminds him of that. And their laws are diverse from all people. These are strange people. They have a different way of looking at things than anybody else. They're odd. They're peculiar. They're weird. Do you ever hear that about your religion? (laughs) From friends and relatives? Neither keep they the king's laws. They pretend to put somebody ahead of the king. Ever go up for a conscientious objector hearing before a military tribunal put together when they wanted you to go into World War One, or I mean World War Two, or the Korean or the Vietnam? I had to do it when I was 18. And they had about four or five guys there, older men that, and here I was an 18-year-old cowering teenager, and uh, I had to explain to them why I couldn't go to war. They don't keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to allow them, to put up with them. So, you know, these people are against you, O great king. If it please the king, Let it be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. Not only are they against you, but I'm going to put up 10,000 talents of silver uh, into your treasury uh, for permission to kill them all. So, he wanted people put in charge of killing all the Jews. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jews' enemy. And the king said to Haman, The silver is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. I don't want your money. Just go kill them all. Kind of the message. And doesn't Satan turn the beast and the prophet, false prophet loose? Say, go kill them all. They put a price of silver on Christ's head too. Go kill him. So the the story is similar. Then were the king's scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month. So they'd conspired through the twelfth month, and on the thirteenth day of the first month, what an interesting day, the day before Passover, that this command was given out and this edict. And there was written according to all that Haman had commanded to the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over every province, to the rulers of every people of every province, according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language. So this went out 
all over the world, to all people and all languages. In the name of King Ahasuerus was it written and sealed with the king's ring. Satan is going to give permission to kill all who would worship the true God. And not only those, but all those who were created by the true God. Because Satan understands, at least to one degree or another, the plan of God, and that is to cause all humanity to someday be in the kingdom of God. That's his plan, that's his purpose. And he is going to largely succeed in that against Satan, because he's the winner. He is the one with the greatest power and the greatest love. Satan is just a destroyer who wants to destroy everything that God, God has made, and including God. That's still on his to-do list. So, the letters were sent by post to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, to take the spoil of them for a prey. So they're going to kill them all and take everything that they had had. That's kind of the way Hitler did the thing in Nazi Germany as well, and the way that our, uh, well, that's kind of the way the Bolshevik Revolution went in Russia. And it's the way it's going to go here in America now that we have communists in control of our government. They're going to do the same thing here, trying to purge all white people, to kill all white people, because they hate white people. Behind the scenes, Israel doesn't even realize who Israel is. <laughs> We don't know as a nation who we are, that we're one of the tribes of Israel. We don't understand that as a people. And yet Satan understands it, and he's turned the whole Gentile world against physical Israel. Or anyone who would attest to God as a so-called Christian or a real Christian. Now, the edict was given on the 13th day of the first month. But it wasn't to, be, uh, to happen until the 13th day of the 12th month. So almost a year goes by in which plans were being made, probably all kinds of communication going back and forth between those who had been in, put in charge of this business to be sure they had the whole thing down pat. And when the appointed day came, every Jew on earth, from a sucking child up, would die. They laid their plans very carefully to get every last one of them. Just like Satan wants to get every last one of us today. And then ultimately the last of all human beings. The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published to all people that they should be ready against that day. Everybody get ready. Sharpen your swords, uh, make your arrows, be ready when that day comes. The posts went out 
being hastened by the king's commandment. They, they didn't have the U.S. Postal Service and trucks then, so they used horses and camels to deliver the mail. That's what a post was. We even did it here for a brief time with the Pony Express until they got the railroad laid. And the decree was given in Shushan the palace, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city Shushan was perplexed. There were a lot of Jews in that city, and they were perplexed, and some of them had friends. And the whole city was upset because they understood there's a day coming when there's going to be great war and to kill all Jews. And that confused and frustrated people. Just like we are a confused and frustrated people today, and people still don't realize they're not trying to save your life with that mask. They're trying to imprison you in it and to get total control of you and ultimately to destroy you. <clears throat> and those vaccines are being made to destroy us. The first round is killing some people. They're, they have designed that thing probably to wait a while and bring something else upon you, or they're waiting for you to get used to the idea that you had an injection and didn't die, and now you're ready for the good one. Why can't we put it together? Bill Gates has clearly said many times the earth ought to be destroyed of 90% of its population. That's his goal. That's his agenda. That's his purpose. And then he is the one behind the vaccine. So people think Bill's trying to save them while Bill said he's going to kill them all. How do they figure this? It's crazy. It's insane to believe you can take that vaccine and live. Because Bill wants you dead. Whether it's the first shot, the second shot, or the third shot, he wants you dead. He said so. Well, it was said so here, too. <laughs> okay? Albert chapter 4. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes. God isn't mentioned here, but the Jews worship God. And when there was trouble, the Jews put on sackcloth and ashes. So why did Mordecai do it? Obviously, he was praying to God and repenting in sackcloth and ashes and asking for God's help and deliverance. So God may not be mentioned by name, but he's certainly acknowledged here. And went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. Now the city was perplexed, and here's Mordecai going out and crying out loud and talking about what's about to happen. And came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Everybody was to be happy, happy, joy, joy, and not be upset by any events and come into the king's palace. 
No sackcloth and ashes there. We're going to party, party. I failed to mention it, but it said up here the city was perplexed, but the king and Haman sat down to drink. Haman was so happy that this had occurred, and the king wanted to get rid of some strange, weird people who were against him and his laws. So they both said, we'll drink to that, and sat down to do so. But Mordecai was upset. And in every province, wherever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing. So they wept, they cried out to God, and fasted. <coughs> and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. That's how depressed, frustrated they were. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it to her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved. And she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him. But he received it not. You want, here we're all going to be destroyed, Esther, and you want to send me some nice gay clothing instead of the sackcloth and ashes? Where's your head, girl? I'm not accepting this. Then called Esther for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. <coughs> so she thought, I don't know what's going on with Uncle Mordecai, but sackcloth and ashes, I love him. He's my uncle. Why is he out there and that? I'll get him some clothes. Well, she didn't know the story yet. So she said, go find out what's going on with Mordecai. She was concerned. So Hatak went forth to Mordecai into the street of the city, which was before the king's gate, and Mordecai told him of all that had happened to him and of the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. So he laid the whole story out to this guy. And he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it to Esther, and to declare it to her, and to charge her that she should go into the king to make supplication to him, and to make requests before him for her people. <coughs> so Mordecai, as Christ is, was very concerned for his people and for his bride. Uh, not Mordecai's bride, but Christ's bride. He's very concerned for her. Looks over her, counts the hairs of her head, and is very concerned that his bride be treated well, and when she's not treated well, what he can do about it and what he will do about it, and so on. So, he wanted her to go to the king. So they're going back and forth here. Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Again, Esther spoke to Hatak and gave him commandment to Mordecai. So she sends a message back. She recognized where she was in this story, and it scared her. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king, into the inner court, who is not called there, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter 
that he may live. But I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. It's been a month since he even asked for me to come see him. And you, you want me, after there's been an edict made to kill all Jews, to go into the king. <laughs> this concerned her greatly. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not within yourself that you shall escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. He said, Sister, you're a Jew too. And all Jews are to be killed. Do you think you're going to survive? You're afraid to go before the king uh, and be killed now. But if you're not killed now, you're going to be killed later anyway. So he used pretty good logic with her. One way or another, girl, you're going to die. For if you altogether hold your peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. In other words, uh, Mordecai knew there was a God. And he's referring to him here. And saying that if you don't do the work that needs to be done, God will raise up someone somewhere else to do it instead. Are we not told? Do the work of God, and if you don't, I'll raise up stones to do it. (laughs) Same story is given to us. Do it whether it's scary or not. Stand up for me whether you like it or not. Stand up. For God's people, whether it scares you or not, have some backbone. Don't kowtow and be a yellowback before the beast and the false prophet. Oh, but I gotta have my money. I gotta have my food. I gotta have my medicine. I gotta have my gasoline. I gotta have my, 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 my. No, you don't. Trust God. We have a story in Hebrews 11 of people who lived in faith. Some of them God allowed to die. Some of them God allowed, like Paul, to be killed a few times. And some were protected and lived. And it's up to you. I mean, it's up to God what He does with you. Do you value your life more than God does? No. Does he have a progress report about you between him and his son and whether you're going to be part of his bride or not? Yes, he does. And he has laid out an agenda of what you need the most to get you there. You may need encouragement, inspiration, strengthening, and blessings in order to encourage you. You may need chastening and trials and tests and troubles in order to humble you. You may need to live until Christ returns, or you may need to die and rot until He returns. And only He knows which is best for you to get you into His kingdom. So when you tell God, but I gotta have this, I gotta have that, they won't give me this unless I do that, God's gonna say, 
I told you to worship me and put me first. And the just shall live by faith and trust in me. Whether you live or whether you die, you're mine. And I have a say in whether you live or die. So don't think you have to trust in Satan and man to get what you want. Trust me and I will take care of you in the way that is best for you. Whether you live or die is up to me. Because you're my slave, you're my servant, you're my creation, and I can deal with you as I please. So trust me and walk in faith, no matter what they tell you, no matter what they deprive you of, or if they cut your head off like they did the most righteous man who had ever lived, John the Baptist. He allowed his head to be cut off. Now when Peter, some of them were in prison, there were times God opened the prison and let them out. As an example to the people, as an example maybe to them, to encourage them that God was there. He didn't do that for John the Baptist. In his mind, John the Baptist was clearly a shoe-in into the kingdom. And John the Baptist was a type of the church. The kings of this world, Satan, the ruler of this world, is going to try to chop all our heads off. This country right now has had guillotines shipped all over it. For that very purpose, not just of shooting or gassing or inoculating, but to chop heads off. It's very efficient. It's quick. What are we going to do? Is there anything you have to have to keep you alive that God cannot provide? In his way, in his time, as he pleases. No. But we are here for the express purpose of being willing to die for Christ as he died for us. We are called upon to be a living sacrifice, and if called upon, to be a dead sacrifice as he was. John the Baptist was one of those. All the apostles save John were called upon to be a dead sacrifice. The two witnesses at the end of this age are called upon to be a dead sacrifice. Are we any better than they? No. What if some of them of understanding fall to the sword, as Daniel 11 says? Are you willing are you ready? Now, some of us are getting so old, we don't care whether we live or die anyway, maybe. But we want it to be our way. We don't want it to be Satan's way. But if we can, that which we might be willing to give up because we can't hear and see and walk anymore, we don't want to give up because the beast won't give us our food anymore. We want it to be on our terms. No, we're here as servants of the living God. That's what we are. 
And he can do with us as he pleases. And we are supposed to accept that with faith, with love, with humility and meekness, and say, do as you wish, but I'm serving the living God. Throw me to the lions. I'm serving the living God. Throw me in the fiery furnace, as you please. But I am here to worship the living God, not your image, O great King. Are you ready for that? If you're not, get ready for that. Now, what did Mordecai say? For if you altogether hold your peace at this time, there shall, uh, then shall there be enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. God's going to get his purpose worked out, whether it's you and me or somebody else. Very clear. But you and your father's house shall be destroyed. So if we don't do what we're supposed to, he'll raise up stones and we'll get destroyed anyway. And who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai worshipped God. He knew about God. He knew about Israel and Judah and the Jews. And that God had chosen them as his people. And he said, Esther, why are you in the spot you're in unless it was foreordained and God set it all up? That you've been brought to the kingdom right now for a specific purpose. You better think about that. Have we been brought for a specific purpose? Think about that. Then Esther bade him return Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast for me. To whom? Baal? No, to God. He's in here. And neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. Now that tells you what fasting is. It isn't just doing without food and drinking water. Fasting is nothing. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go to the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. There's the attitude God wants in his bride. Esther is an example of that here. I'll do before God what I need to do. I'll fast, I'll pray, and talk to him about it. And then I'll go into the king, and if I perish, I perish. That's what Daniel did. Abraham, I'm Abraham. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... All of God's people were tested and tried. And here she was going to be tested and tried. So she said, okay, I'm with the program, Uncle Mordecai. I'll do this. Fast for me. Help me have the right attitude. Ask God to deliver me, to give me peace before the king. I'm on my way. Don't tell me God is not involved in this story. 